Welcome, or welcome back to Pribros Chronicles, a podcast one listener describes as a truly comforting journey in the midst of a world gone mad. I don't know about that, but I do know that as each episode posts, more and more folks are dropping by. And after they do, they are indicating these bi-weekly installments recalling the coming of age of one baby boomer on the northeast side of Indianapolis during the 50s and 60s have a universal appeal and prompt warm recollections of a time long past. Today is episode 6 of season 1, and I'm Marty Young, the creator of Primrose Chronicles, also its editor, narrator, and host. I'm glad you tuned in. As I consider what to write for this segment in preparation for broadcast, I realize Mother's Day had snuck up on me, and it's this coming Sunday, May the 8th. That awareness quickly formed the impetus for the content of this nostalgic effort. Thus, today's episode is simply entitled, A Tribute to Mom. I realize that the more personal I get with my thoughts, the less it will connect with the hundreds coming to this podcast, drawn here by their relating to earlier events and remembrances previously locked in their own memories. I can only hope you won't give up on listening to this one too soon, but rather use my thoughts to prompt your own efforts to pay tribute to your own mom in a meaningful homage specific with the examples of interaction, parent and offspring, mom and child. If you keep listening till the end, stay with me a few more minutes longer to see how you'll be invited to join others in an interactive forum on our moms as part of Primrose Chronicles Facebook page postings and private groups. But first, let me reintroduce you to my mom, the wife of Don Young, the mother of all five of us young'uns who lived at 4425 Primrose, Dorothy Ellen Smith Young. Admittedly, to share my recollections of my mom, even if solely from my birth order as firstborn and thus child-rearing guinea pig for Don and Dot, from first efforts of protection and nurture through teen-year extension of independence, would rival a Ken Burns documentary in length and scope. Instead, I've chosen to cherry-pick from the scores of stories that have arisen over the years among my siblings and neighborhood friends to recount three, yeah, count them, three, recognitions of why I was blessed to have Dot Young as my mom. One, suggests why she was so endearing to me. One, why she was so influential. And finally, why she was so real and personal and approachable and, yes, loved. Each of us, for a dozen plus reasons, could say at times, Mom liked them best. And then other times, agree with Tommy Smothers that Mom always liked you best. That alone secured the truth that Mom was an equal opportunity lover of her five kids. Each of these areas, endearment, influence, and personal connection, could and has been highlighted by each of my brothers and my sister. The following are my observations. Mom has been gone over 18 years. She passed March 10, 2004. And the sweetest, most endearing memories are the many efforts she made to help her firstborn navigate the world of school and making friends. Nothing so unusual about those efforts. All of us can probably speak of them with our moms, but none of us can appreciate the efforts of another mother, only compare and contrast with our own experience, seen through the prism of our own emotional coloring of those events. Early on, did I mention I was firstborn? Mom shared aches of that number one in the birth order, me, as I so longed to fit in and be accepted by my classmates. As much as she could, she sought to help. Her ways and means were numerous, but most endearing were her endless stenographic efforts 
to provide me with multiple copies of the latest theme song lyrics to Disney serials. Not C-E-R-E-A-L-S like Wheaties, Post Toasties, Rice Krispies, or Sugar Pops, but rather S-E-R-I-A-L-S, stories with lead characters who appeared in weekly installments on either the Mickey Mouse Club in the afternoons or Wednesday nights on Walt Disney's Disneyland. In Indianapolis, the ABC affiliate, WLWI, Channel 13, had afternoon programming with American Bandstand with Dick Clark at 4 o'clock, followed by Mickey Mouse Club at 5 o'clock, both one-hour shows. When the family gathered around the TV in the living room in the mid-1950s on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, it was tuned to Channel 6, WFBM, and NBC for Walt Disney Presents Disneyland. I offer this background because it was on Walt Disney Presents that families across America got teases of the lands that made up the newest, the greatest, and the most desired vacation destination, Disneyland in Anaheim, California. Each week, Frontierland, Adventureland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland were introduced, and a special presentation themed to one of the lands filled the hour. It was probably the one hour in a week, especially after Daylight Savings Time clicked in, that Primrose was deserted as the dozens of kids vacated the street and filled their own homes. Groans or cheers would go up when the special features were announced by Mr. Walt Disney himself. Growing beyond cartoons and slightly bored by the animal nature segments, Walt Disney Presents held my attention most when it was a presentation on space and technology or scenes from the Disneyland Park, a vacation which I just knew Dad would surprise us with as soon as the youngest young at the time reached an age where him or her would appreciate it with all its glories. As it turned out, none of us kids entered any Magic Kingdom until we were at least in our 20s, some to Disneyland, others to Disney World in Florida, and my folks, not until they accompanied their grandchildren on the grand adventure. Wait, I'm getting sidetracked. What led me down that rabbit trail? Oh yeah, mom's endearing quality demonstrated through Disney theme songs. It was probably all in my head. But even though I was the tallest in my class, a fairly good student, a comfortable, at least on the outside, social animal, I was desperate to carve out a place of acceptance among my peers. Somehow, in spite of the positive comments my instructors made on my report cards and in parent-teacher meetings, I wasn't sure how much I was accepted or fit in. Mom saw I needed a boost of self-confidence and a sense of assurance in myself. I don't know what child psychologists would have said about mom's methodology, but you talk about endearment, she gained mine. There were, of course, many times she boosted and assured. I've chosen to talk about the one that continued over several years. Remember I talked about Walt Disney Presents? Well, of that entire show, the presentation that took the nation by storm, including the classrooms of School 91, was the one that featured the exploits of Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Since everybody with a TV was tuned in on Wednesday evenings to Disney, when Fess Parker introduced his character, a frontiersman with his coonskin cap, fringed leather jacket, bowie knife, and a rifle called Betsy, it captured the fancy of America and the yearnings of every young kid. Those were big, but soon the biggest part of the Davy Crockett phenomenon was his theme song. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, Greatest state in the land of the free, raised in the woods so he knew every tree, killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. 
Everybody knew that first verse, lyric and melody. But Disney kept producing episodes. And with each episode came new verses, not as familiar or as easily remembered. But us kids still wanted to sing along or lead others in the lyric singing. That's when Mom stepped in. And over time made me a purveyor of Disney hits. The go-to guy for song sheets, establishing my desk at school as the first stop before school started on Friday to get the official lyrics of what would soon be the newest words on the street. What would happen was this. Mom, who graduated from Shortridge High School with an emphasis in business science, winning several awards for her proficiency in shorthand and typing, she became the stenographer for the opening and closing credits of Davy Crockett episodes. The parts where they sang the theme song with any new verses that would refer to the events taking place in the storyline that night. On Thursday mornings, even as kids were underfoot, but usually when they napped, Mom would bring out her Underwood manual typewriter, grab about three or four sheets of typing paper and two or three pieces of letter-sized carbon paper, insert the carbon between the paper sheets, roll them into the typewriter, and, from her shorthand notes taken the night before, type the four to six verses, eventually eight verses, of the Ballad of Davy Crockett. If you've never worked with carbon paper and a typewriter, it's hard to understand how tedious and dirty it could be. If you have, you appreciate immensely the advancement of photocopiers and the laptop. Every letter, every word, every punctuation mark needed to be perfect. In order, in spelling, and in spacing. If not, the typist paused, rolled the paper up off the roller a ways, separated each of the pages, and erased the mistake all before rolling the paper back into position and going forward. In the first weeks of Mom's efforts for her firstborn, I offered her work to one or two of my best friends in the class to make them better friends. Before the first season of the Davy Crockett legend came to an end, those few copies neared one dozen, with Mom repeating her secretarial efforts three or four times, giving my desk a newsstand vibe with the hot off the press or hot out of the typewriter, a much sought after commodity. If I'd known who William Randolph Hearst was, I probably would have felt just like him. But anyway, maybe the most endearing part of these sacrifices was that mom did not only do this for Davy Crockett, but also lesser known theme songs like Texas John Slaughter and Zorro from the Wednesday night serials Remember, not C-E-R-E-A-L, but S-E-R-I-A-L. But also Mickey Mouse Club offerings like Spin and Marty, you know, way out there on the Triple R. And the Hardy Boys, gold doubloons and pieces of eight handed down to Applegate. Over time, the reproductions did become less frequent. I was less dependent upon her efforts to win the favor of classmates. But even now, 65 years later, a typewriter and or carbon paper reminds me in a strange sort of way how much my mama loved me. Well, I've still got some time in this recording, so let me briefly speak to how much Dorothy Young was an influence in my going forward into life. Again, a comprehensive coverage would be far too lengthy. Following is one thumbnail sketch coming to my thoughts as I move into this Mother's Day weekend remembering. As was the case for most of the baby boomer generation of which I was a charter member, the model home was a father who worked 40 to 50 hours a week to provide 
and a mother who stayed home, watched the kids, managed the chores, and compared notes with the other stereotypical spouses of the neighborhood. As a result of being the firstborn, I benefited from an early upbringing largely supervised and guided by mother. And I can tout the truth that she definitely had the greatest overall positive influence in my life. It began early, for at least the first couple of years until Nancy came along. As a result, I walked and talked early through her encouragement. My vocabulary grew leaps and bounds as she took it upon herself for me to be the most verbal in comparison to all her friends' kids. Even as the young clan expanded every two and a half years or so, while each of us kids had a special place in mom's heart and schedule and concern, I think, again as the oldest, that I was treated as a little adult, invited to participate, sometimes perform, in activities sometimes well beyond my years. By that I mean... Mom and I discovered the world outside of Primrose together. It was the early days of TV and the waning days of radio, and both were used to introduce me to more. Yes, more commercials, raising my wants to a level of perceived needs, but mostly features of human interest presented in educational formats like The Today Show, Captain Kangaroo, Ding Dong School, and The Jane and Curly Show, each deserving their own episode time, just not this one. The exposure led to inquiry, and Mom knew she had an inquisitive young lad on her hands. To her credit and my undying gratitude, she introduced me to the joy of reading and the treat of the daily television game show. As I grew, Mom made certain libraries were in my experience, both public and school, Television game shows brought a different kind of thrill. Mom truly enjoyed them, and she worked her household tasks around them. Seldom did she have any time for the simple luck of the draw, spin of the wheel, roll of the dice type shows. Mom enjoyed and encouraged me to participate with her in the contests that required either powers of deduction, observation, or general knowledge. As such, I cut my game show teeth on Gary Moore's I've Got a Secret, Bud Collier's To Tell the Truth, Hugh Downs' Concentration, and the daily noontime staple, Art Fleming's Jeopardy. Most of those shows were simply diversions, but Jeopardy was hardcore. Once I reached upper elementary, summer lunchtimes found me called in from my neighborhood escapades, sitting with paper and pencil and mom, asking the questions that Art gave the answers to making sure they were in the form of a question, adding and subtracting the cash amounts as we sped through the categories. TV network executives discovered the addiction so many Americans had to AM game shows. They began producing them for the evening primetime audience as well. And Mom and I were right there for Hal March's $64,000 question and Jack Berry's twenty-one. Experiences closer to home than the game shows brought into the living room via TV were the board and card games she introduced me to, kept on the shelves of our hall closet. Checkers, both traditional and Chinese, along with chutes and ladders and go to the head of the class, were early selections of endless kitchen table contests. That led to the generational staples of Monopoly and Scrabble, and then on to card games like Old Maid, Go Fish, Authors, which were stepping stones to Rummy, Canasta, and even Penny Poker, a vice that nearly got out of control for one high school enthusiast. 
Again, another tale for another installment. In any case, it was Mom who taught the intricacies of wise and strategic choices. Combining with a bit of reading people and the occasional bluff, and these were all lessons that involved higher-level thinking skills not likely taught in elementary curriculum. Mom offered many other positive influences, like the importance of faith and attending places of faith, the necessity of honesty, the personal benefits that came from serving others, all of which helped mold a special foundation for the life ahead. Yet it's funny how I chose to focus on what many would consider a form of recreation or diversion to offer this testimonial to her influence. But the years have confirmed the depth of learning that took place around a TV screen, a board game, or a deck of cards. Lastly, in this seasonal salute to my mother, my mom, I want to let you in on the person she was that allowed me to feel so comfortable going to her with about anything, to feel the great exhilaration when I knew she was pleased with me, and to feel the greatest pain when I knew I had disappointed her in my efforts or lack of same. may sound surprising to you, but much of that came from my appreciation for how she enjoyed, delivered, and could take a joke. Pranks were a part of growing up in a family of seven, and it was especially Mom's reaction to those that made her all the more human. As a result, she was all the more approachable when the chips were down and a discouraged boy wondered how he might recover from life's hurts or hits or hang-ups. With the little time I have left, but not wanting to quite leave this acclamation effort, I want to share a gag pulled off at the expense of my dear mother and her next-door neighbor, Charlotte Mills, by their two oldest, Larry and myself, in tandem. I've already celebrated in Episode 2 the backdrop for our family's years on Primrose Avenue, and the fact that there was, at one time, over 100 kids in that one block of that hallowed lane from 44th to 45th Street. In future episodes, several will appear, always positively, like the Roses, Judy, Joe, Jan, Jean, and Jill, and the Masters, Sam, Susie, and Mike, but also contributing greatly to that century mark were the five Mills kids, Larry, Marcia, Jack, Rusty, and Ronnie, and those lined up exactly in birth order with the young quintet, me and Nancy, followed by Dave, Jim, and Bill, a boy, a girl, and then three boys. Mom and Dad and Charlotte and Kenny had hung out in high school together, so close during those teen years that the two moms had been in each other's weddings, and now... The two clans lived right next door to each other, making the families in many ways inseparable, whether the kids wanted to be or not at times. For the parents, it was all about the almost daily times around one kitchen table or another, drinking coffee, or on our front brick patio with sweetened iced tea all around, and always with the cigarettes. It was at one of those confabs that it was decided that we should go on a day trip to the lake together. And just like that, the planning was begun. Both families had the necessary station wagons, and with the appropriate roof racks, could accommodate the necessary coolers, inflatable water toys, towels, etc., as well as the gaggle of kids ranging from preteen down through toddler. Though it would take a careful and thoughtful packing job to fit one and all, even if only for one long day at Cataract Lake. Unbeknownst to the parents, especially the mothers, Larry and I had done some packing of our own. 
in one of our trips to Steg's, the neighborhood drugstore at 46th and Marcy Lean, we found the perfect addition to this family excursion. I don't remember if the bike ride to Steg's was just to sit at the soda fountain and drink a Green River, check the music rack to see if any of the latest 45s had arrived, or to buy Mom and Dad their daily packs of Winston's. But our discovery was certainly tobacco-related. We found that there was a way to make cigarettes explode. The package offering this opportunity cost about a dime and contained 10 one-inch-long sticks no thicker than a toothpick, that, when inserted in the tip of a cigarette and then lit, would reach detonation temperature quickly and explode. The illustration on the package confirmed that would be the outcome, complete with uproarious laughter by all, at the expense of the innocent victim, whose only crime was smoking the cancer sticks in the first place. Buying the tin together and then splitting the contents we set about to find a time to pack a few of the sticks in several of our mother's cigarettes. Not that we expected to have them all used, but the arming of multiple cigarettes was decided upon to be certain that the deed was carried out early in the outing. And it was. With everyone scurrying around the two houses, packing and repacking cars and coolers, individual beach bags and picnic baskets, It was not a real problem to find the ladies' cigarette cases, load the mini firecrackers, and wait for them to unwittingly experience our attempt at levity. The time came to make the one-hour caravan to Cataract Lake, southwest of Indianapolis, about 60 miles. And so, two station wagons, with its occupants divided not by family but by age, left their respective driveways. Dad drove our car, in which were Mom, Charlotte, and the four youngest of the combined families. Kenny captained the other station wagon, with the six oldest. Larry and I claimed the rear-facing back seat, the others fighting over front seat and windows. And off we headed, us in the lead, our Chrysler following, with Dad, rear window to front bumper. It was that arrangement that would allow Larry and I to witness the result of our caper firsthand, yet from a safe distance. We weren't very far past the state fairgrounds, on our way to Cloverdale and Cataract's Grass Beach, when Mom and Charlotte lit up at the same time. And because our plan to embed multiple cigarettes with the munitions, each selected a previously doctored smoke. We watched the action taking place just a few dozen feet behind us, hardly believing that we might have a front row seat to our finest hour of humor. Then, at a traffic light, both lit up. Seated in the front seat of the station wagon, Mom next to Dad and Charlotte riding shotgun, Mom used Dad's lighter to light her best friend's cigarette first, then her own. Consequently, Charlotte's went off first, with Mom's one quick, short drag behind. Oh, it was epic. Tobacco and paper went everywhere. Mom and Charlotte jumped, seriously rattled, but unhurt. We could see that from our vantage point. What we couldn't hear was Dad's potentially profane epithets, and maybe some softer yet still choice ones from the ladies, as well as the cries from the younger Mills and Youngs, awakened from the naps that both mothers had hoped would last until we arrived at our destination. The rest of the trip was a variety of momly gestures toward us that lost none of their intensity and meaning 
as the signs passed visually through their windshield and into our back window. It appeared we might not live the weekend. The hour ride cooled them, though, somewhat, and with Dad and Kenny also thinking it was hilarious. The resulting punishment consisted of no time in the water for an hour, and then the cost of a quarter from each of us to buy them fresh packs of cigarettes and getting assurances from us, under penalty of great bodily harm that there would be no further detonations. They also kept their future packs on their person and within sight to avoid future frights. I don't remember the rest of that lake day, but the initial moments were certainly memorable enough to still come to my mind as classic hijinks. And there you have it, another journey back from the midst of a world slightly mad. I'll leave it to you to decide if it was comforting or even mildly enjoyable. But I think today, I hope most for it to prompt your own thoughts toward your own mother so that if you're blessed enough to still have her on earth with you, you'll make a deliberate point to express your love in a meaningful way. And if she's gone on to her reward, that you'll pause. Thank God for her presence in your life and reflect, consider, and maybe even share your own realizations of how she endeared herself to you, influenced your future favorably, and showed herself approachable to your benefit and your blessing. I would love to hear your thoughts and invite you to share them, however briefly, on the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page in the next few days leading up to Mother's Day. That could produce a very meaningful montage of heartfelt expressions shared by many. The response to Primrose Chronicles continues to be a huge surprise to me. Thank you for the growing number of followers and daily downloads and for reviewing and sharing and liking the content so enthusiastically. It's prompting me to investigate ways that we can become even more of a community. Let me know if you'd like that kind of connection, and I'll write back with some thoughts about making it happen. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with a couple or three episodes centering around School 91, elementary and junior high experiences. And in June, there will be a Father's Day feature, much like this one, that will go beyond Let's Go Find Randy. Until then, enjoy your own kith and kin, and I'll fondly remember mine, especially in those days when life was a holiday, and especially a family, a heritage worth honoring on Primrose Lane, or Avenue. Blessings. Blessings.